As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line, ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. handbook on how to cope with being the victim of a hate crime. No one tells you how much this will forever change your life. No one tells you that anytime you hear of another racially motivated act, you'll become triggered and fear for your own safety. No one tells you how much of a dark cloud this will become over every aspect of your life. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And I'm going to guess, if you're listening to this show, you already know that hate crime violence has increased in this country over the past, oh, coincidentally, two years or so. Basically, since Donald Trump first rode down the escalator in Trump Tower. You've probably read and seen the in-depth, you know, long-form journalism that's occurred to uncover the rise of the alt-right and the new white nationalism, which is basically the same as the old white nationalism. A lot of people are really concerned, and they should be. But have you noticed that for all the energy we well-meaning folk spend studying the rise of the alt-right and white supremacy, we don't do a whole lot of studying of the people who have been the targets of those groups. We hear a lot of people trying to figure out the motives of those who perpetrate the violence, and we don't hear so much about the survivors of that violence they all kind of blend together. Well, Arjun Singh Sethi noticed that we weren't hearing those stories and decided to do something about it. I'm going to talk to him about the project that came out of that realization, the book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. I'd like to welcome to the show Arjun Singh Sethi. He is a community activist, civil rights lawyer, writer, and professor based in Washington, D.C., And in the wake of the 2016 presidential election, Arjun traveled the country and documented the lives of people who had been targeted by hate. His new book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out, will be released on August 7th and is available for pre-order today. Even if you're listening to this show after August 7th, it is available for order. Arjun, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm this project is really interesting and I'm I'm curious though just about the long-term genesis of it. You've been studying community activism and you've been in doing community activism and civil rights for a long time. What what first drew you to actually participating in that community? 
So I myself am a Sikh American. Um, I can be identified by my articles of faith, um, which are a turban and beard. Um, Sikh Americans have been acutely vulnerable to hate and hate violence uh, really for decades in this country. Um, so in many ways, what first um, uh, drove me to this work is my identity. Um, but I've also just generally been interested in civil rights work for a long time. I mean, it's something that I studied uh, in college. Um, when I was in law school, I focused on civil rights litigation and human rights law. Um, and as an activist, I have been in close touch um, with targeted and vulnerable communities really for years. Um, and during the 2016 presidential election, and of course, under the Trump administration, uh, there have been, there's, there's clearly evidence that hate um, and, and state violence is spiking across the country. And I thought it was important to travel the country and, and, and capture those stories. You talk about the, the violence spiking. One of the things I heard from my friends who are people of color in the run-up to the election was concerned about what would happen. But also, I heard a lot about what I didn't already know was happening, that there was already a lot of hate and a lot of animosity um, in communities that, you know, people like myself, you know, privileged white people, you know, we thought things were getting better. <laughs> you know, we, we, we allowed ourselves that illusion. What were the communities, what did they look like before Trump was running? Like, what was the norm before? I mean, I imagine it wasn't that good. I guess that's my, my point is that I imagine it wasn't that good before. Absolutely. Um, look, in the book, I talk about this and I say this country was built on a hate crime, the decimation and genocide of Native communities. Um, and was really furthered by additional hate crimes, whether it's slavery, mass incarceration, Jim Crow. Uh, hate violence has been a fixture of this country for as long as it has existed. Um, hate preexisted Trump and it will endure after him. But there is no doubt that hate has spiked um, because of his administration. And part of what's difficult about the issue of hate violence is that we don't actually know the depth of the problem. So according to the FBI, for example, there were something like 6,000 hate crimes that were committed in the year 2016. But if you look at the National Crime Victimization Survey, there could be as many as 250,000 hate crimes that are happening every year. And the reason there is that gap is because the FBI report relies on voluntary reporting by local police. It's not mandatory. So most police don't bother reporting, which is why you have that huge gap. So the truth is, 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 is hate in some form or another has been around for a very long time. Uh, but I do think we need to understand that this president and this administration um, has really emboldened uh, and exacerbated anti-black racism, anti-native sentiment, Islamophobia, sexism, um, and the like across this country. So you feel like it is measurable. There have been studies that shown that the spike isn't just something that's anecdotal. We're not just hearing about it now. It's it's something that communities are reporting back to you. Absolutely. And again, the data that we so we know that it's spiking both from just anecdotal evidence, right? So there are community organizers who've worked with vulnerable communities for decades. 
and they are hearing that hate is spiking in many different ways. So it can be bullying in the classroom. It can be incidents of hate in a grocery store where someone just says something nasty to you. Uh, it can be a armed protest outside a mosque. Um, it can be white supremacist risings like we saw in Charlottesville. Or it can be terrible acts of hate violence, uh, some of which are, are, are profiled in the book. So we know that from community organizers on the ground, the FBI data, which again is incomplete, nevertheless shows a spike in 2016 through the course of the year and through the election. So again, the data that we do have shows that in the Southern Poverty Law Center, they did their own study and they documented more than a thousand incidents of hate just in the first 30 days following the election. And so that's not arguable at all. Like, we've seen this spike. I, and you went out and put names and faces to some of these events that we might have heard about. You know, one question I have to ask you, and it's, it's sad that I have to ask it, but I will, which is how do you choose who to profile when, when the violence is that pervasive? It's hard. Um, I thought it was important to have a spectrum of voices. Um, so you will find refugee perspectives, immigrant perspectives, undocumented voices, queer and trans voices, Sikh, Muslim, Arab, black, um, lot Jewish, lots of different communities. So that was important to me. I thought it was important to center young people um, and women of color because it is young people and women of color who are on the front lines actually pushing back against the policies of today. Um, it is often women of color who are most acutely vulnerable to violence generally in this country, um, whether it's gender violence or hate violence. And sometimes, unfortunately, there's a connection between the two. You know, and in some cases, it was also just making sure that I had, making sure that I captured the spectrum of hate in this country. So when I started out, initially I thought maybe I would just include the most searing examples of hate violence and I would put them in a single book. But as I worked with communities and as I spoke to survivors, I actually felt that that would be a disservice. And what I really needed to do was, again, capture this many different ways that communities experience hate, which is why you will find stories of bullying, vicious cyber trolling, vandalism and arson of houses of worship, um, examples of state violence. Um, you know, there are people who experience certain forms of state violence as state-sponsored forms of hate. Uh, Jeanette Visgura, uh, an undocumented mother of four, talks about how she feared being ripped away from her family. Dominic Evans, who is both a person with a disability and trans, talks about how deprivation of health care for him is a state-sponsored form of hate because it will send him to his deathbed. Um, so I wanted to capture those stories too. And of course, um, some of the most tragic stories, um, which are uh, uh, families who've lost loved ones. So one of the families I spoke to um, is the family of Khalid Jabara. He was an Arab American um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, who was murdered uh, just a few months before the election by his next door neighbor, uh, who was a known racist, who had previously, months earlier, run over, you know, Khalid's mother. And I met with the family in their home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I want to draw attention to, to the fact that these are the voices of the people who've, who've actually experienced the hate. Like you went out of your way to interview these people and the, these stories are told in their voices. And that's important because as you point out in your introduction, 
in the Trump era in particular, it has become almost trendy to speak, write, produce, and direct material about marginalized community. But rarely do the purveyors of the content sit down and speak at length with survivors. What did you learn by, by doing that? So thank you for asking that, and thank you for, for pointing out that, that particular passage. I thought it was important to give agency back to survivors and to really center them, which is why I did my very best to travel and meet them in their homes and houses of worship. Um, I think their stories in their own words are more likely to move people. I think if we are going to have real policy discussions about how to address hate and state violence, we've got to be proximate. We've got to be close to the problem. And the survivors I spoke with have very interesting novel ideas about how to combat hate and state violence. And I also do think that, you know, we run the risk in this particular moment uh, of seeing hate just being a manifestation of the Trump administration because so many people in some ways or another are, are talking about it. And like I say, it's almost trendy to, to, to produce or, 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 or write commentary you know, about these communities. Um, and as a consequence, I just wanted to go back to the problem and I wanted to get as local as possible um, and, and situate these stories you know, within a broader context. And a lot of the stories do that. Um, a lot of the survivors talk about how they have, never, they have experienced a spike in hate because of this administration. But for some of them, you know, hate has been a fixture of their lives for some time. And, it, and it's important to sort of, you know, acknowledge that. I, yeah, I, I want to point out that the diverse set of voices that you've presented are diverse, not just in their identities, but in the way that they talk about what they've experienced and in the solutions that they propose and in the amount of hope that they have about those solutions, I should say. Like, this is definitely not like a a concerted argument for a particular set of policy solutions. This is testimony more than anything else. I mean, I, I think like there are some ideas here that I agree with and some that I don't agree with, but you're hearing them all from the people who've experienced, you know, these acts of violence, whether this violence was, you know, physical um, or more uh, psychological. And, and you do have a whole list of recommendations at the end of the book, and I want to get to that. I am curious, though, since this book is is testimony, what do you hope it accomplishes? Who do you think these witnesses are speaking to? First and foremost, I hope the survivors that I spoke with um, take comfort um, in telling their stories and having their stories included in this volume. One of the things that I'm planning on doing after the book comes out is to actually hold community conversations where all of the survivors live, where they can once again be centered and tell their stories, should they wish, you know, to their broader community. And that will be a forum for education, for anti-racism, uh, for discussion. So that's sort of first and foremost. Um, I hope it's a tool for activists and communities, you know, who work on these issues. Um, they can get a sense of, what survivors need. I talk in the conclusion about how some survivors don't have access to health care. Um, a lot of them struggle with mental health issues. Every survivor I spoke with expressed an aching desire to meet with one another because there are few, if any, survivor networks connecting 
survivors of hate to one another. I hope it's a tool for allies. Um, I hope allies can look at these stories, can look at the recommendations, um, and be more informed about how they can support vulnerable communities, both during the Trump administration and otherwise. Um, you know, and it's also just in general a call to action. Um, anybody who cares, um, you know, about about this country should read this book and should read the perspectives among amongst the most vulnerable among us about what this moment feels like, how they are impacted, um, and what they need to heal and move forward. I'll confess that as I was reading the book, there was a part of me, a very cynical part of me, that thought, you know, whoever picks up this book to read it is going is, doesn't need it, right? Like, they're already on the right side. I probably would consider myself someone already on the right side. But I will tell my fellow well-meaning white people, this book still challenged me in a, in a, a very real way. And the way that it challenged me, it's, to circle back just a little bit, is the idea that these people's stories are so quickly decentered from them. That the stories become not about them, but about uh, white people. Um, whether that white person is Trump or whether that white person is, what do we white people do about this? And that decentering is paralleled in the justice system. And you write a little bit about that, about how even in the justice system, these victims don't remain the center of the story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So. One of the themes of the book is very much restorative justice, and I talk about how we need to incorporate survivors in conversations about how we move forward with respect to the criminal justice system. So Asma al-Bukaye is a Syrian refugee, and she's the first Syrian refugee to ever be resettled in the state of Idaho. And her son was punched to the ground one day in Boise um, when, after somebody asked him, are you Muslim? And he said, yes, I'm Muslim. And the, 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 the suspect punched him to the ground. And Asma actually talks about how when she was in open court, the judge asked her, do you have a statement to make regarding your son and what happened? And her response was, this suspect shouldn't go to jail. Because he's not going to learn about Muslims in jail. Asma is, 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 is a, a, a Syrian mother and she wears a hijab, Muslim woman. He's not going to learn about refugees and Muslims in jail. If it was up to me, he would spend time with these communities and understand us and understand that we share many of the same dreams and aspirations as, as really anyone else does in this country. Um, there are lots of examples like that. Sarat Swang, the executive director of the Providence Youth Student Movement, he talks about how the day after they had one of their uh, sort of annual galas, their offices were vandalized. And he talks about how he decided not to call the police because they're an abolition organization. And it was important to them in that moment to reaffirm those values, meaning if so much of the violence they experience is because of the state, how can the state then be trusted to actually meaningfully investigate a hate crime, bring the culprits to justice, and center the community, in this case, PRISM, the Providence Youth Student Movement, that had been targeted. So really, the, the, uh, the, the entire book um, 
very intentionally centers survivors uh, through their testimonials, centers survivors with respect to, you know, policy discussions. And, you know, I think you're right to point out that there it is very trendy right now to focus, okay, well, how do we understand neo-Nazis and how do we understand white supremacists? And to some degree, a little bit of that coverage, I think, is fine. But what is shocking to me is the amount of coverage we see like that. Sometimes it feels like mainstream media is more interested in understanding neo-Nazis and white supremacists than actually exploring and documenting what's happening to targeted and vulnerable communities in this moment. And that, to me, is unacceptable. And that is shocking. And that's one of the reasons that I thought I felt compelled to work on this book. Yeah, I think people need to be very aware that the current sort of template for covering hate crime seems to be the sensationalization of the perpetrator, the story of the perpetrator. And it, it's not necessarily positive coverage. I, I, I don't, most of the time, I don't think. But it's uh, it's like, how did he get to be this way, right? And, and you know, this, and also sometimes, again, connecting it to Trump and making it a part of that narrative. But the victims themselves don't always get a story, they don't. We don't dive into. Well, why was that person's life the way that they it was, and and that's obviously like something you're you're offering this book as a corrective to. Let's circle around back to the to the justice system. I think that it's an amazing story to decide not to include the justice system to 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 stay true to the organization's values and and pursue your own own path of restorative justice. But you do talk about the need for hate crime legislation. In this book, do you want to talk about that specifically about why it's needed? Sure. So again, if you ask targeted and vulnerable communities across this country, if you ask survivors, they will tell you that hate crime legislation is important to them, not because they want to add 10 years, 2 years, 20 years to already lengthy prison sentences in this country. They believe we need hate crime laws because hate crimes are inherently different from other crimes. The definition of a hate crime is a crime that really wouldn't have occurred absent the survivor victim's identity. And as a consequence, in moments like that, we need the government to step forward and to treat those crimes differently, right? And to tell communities, we have your back. Hate crime laws also allow judges to prescribe restorative sentences. And that's why you've seen in hate crime cases, judges actually say to the suspect as part of your sentence, you need to take a course in Asian studies. You need to learn about the affected community. You need to do public service. Hate crime legislation also allows us to see the intersection among different hate crimes. So if we just call them crimes, right? then we don't look at the root causes. But if we talk about them as hate crimes, then it allows us to have a deeper conversation about what? Things like white supremacy that the media often doesn't want to talk about. So that's the importance of hate crime legislation. Um, It has symbolic value to communities. I think it has symbolic value to the public. It allows us to see different crimes as interconnected and being rooted in hate and bigotry, often white supremacy. Um, And it allows judges and the judicial system to prescribe some of these restorative sentences that, that often aren't available or used in other types of cases. But it's also true not all hate crime legislation is created equal. 
and there's sort of better and worse practices on this. Do you want to talk about what sort of the best case scenario of what a hate crime uh, legislation might look like and what it would do, what it would mean? Sure. So there are five states that have no hate crime laws. Um, There are 45 states that do, but even then it's incomplete. So in some cases, they don't cover all the protected characteristics. In some cases, they only cover misdemeanor offenses. Now, there is a federal hate crime statute. The problem with the federal hate crime statute is that courts have interpreted that law to require prosecutors to show that hate is the sole motivating factor behind a crime. So the example I give in the book is if somebody, for example, targets a mosque because he dislikes Muslims, but also targets a mosque because he doesn't like the traffic that it's causing in his community, then it's not a hate crime because there were multiple factors that contributed to the act of hate. So for me, a meaningful hate crime statute is a statute that covers all protected characteristics, ranging from gender, sexual orientation, uh, disability, race, and the like, um, includes both a misdemeanor and felony component, and moves away from that causation analysis I just talked about on the federal side and kind of specifies that so long as hate is a significant contributing factor, hate crime charges can be brought. That, to me, is sort of what uh, a sort of strong hate crime statute uh, would look like. So I want to take a quick break and then return to some of the recommendations and solutions and, and opportunities uh, that you talk about in the book. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Victorious. Victorious brings the fitness studio to you with live group fitness classes that you can participate in from anywhere, anytime. Victorious offers real-time fitness classes that you can stream live using your computer, phone, tablet, or television, but it's not just streaming. The classes are interactive. We're talking high-intensity interval training, yoga, boxing, cardio, and more. The classes last from 35 to 45 minutes, and they happen throughout the day and evening. Indeed, there is a candlelight yoga class, I think, like at 1130 my time. Train with some of the best trainers from some of the best studios in the U.S. Victoria trainers are renowned, qualified, and entertaining and personable. They'll interact with you and keep you motivated. The classes are entertaining and challenging with curated music playlists and high production values. Victorious believes in a fun environment that ups the energy and keeps your attention because if you don't enjoy the process, you'll never achieve the results. And you can take unlimited classes each month for the price of a single fitness class. No equipment to buy, no getting locked into a long-term contract. All you need is you. If you are like me, and some of you are like me, committing to a class is a great motivator, but actually showing up is kind of a problem. But I also don't like the just merely on-demand stuff because you don't have that firm commitment to do it. You can say, always tell yourself that you'll do it later. With a class, you have to do it when the class is happening. But with Victorious, you don't have to go somewhere. I've said before, I've been concentrating mainly on yoga because that's just where I'm at. But there is a lot of other stuff you can do. And you know what? You are trying it in the privacy of your own home. So if you've ever been you know, wanting to take a boxing class but thought, oh, I might look a little silly, take the boxing class now. And I have a special offer exclusively for my listeners. You can get a free month of unlimited Victorious Fitness classes when you sign up at Victorious.com. 
victorious.com slash friends. That's victorious.com slash friends to try Victorious for free for a month. It will change the way you work out. And I thank Victorious for sponsoring this podcast. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So, yes, let's return to solutions, policies, proposals. You outlined some in the conclusion of the book. One of them is is better hate crime legislation. Another one you mentioned before that I don't I didn't realize was such a problem is just sheer reporting of hate crimes. How do you how do we get better about that? Well, I think there should be mandatory hate crime reporting by the federal government. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, the FBI releases data every year on hate crimes. But the data that the FBI releases relies on voluntary reporting from local law enforcement, not mandatory reporting. So most police departments across the country don't bother reporting. And many that do report, report zero hate crimes. So one of the examples I give is that I think in 2015, according to the FBI, there were six hate crimes committed against sick Americans. Yet, a sick community rights organization knew of 15 incidents that had targeted sick community members. So the data is obviously incomplete. Better data will, of course, allow us to see who's being targeted, where, and by whom. So we just need a mechanism for mandatory hate crime reporting. You know, one of the other issues that comes up is that in some cases, survivors are hesitant about coming forward. In some cases, they don't want to reveal their immigration status if they're undocumented. Um, They might not want to reveal their sexual orientation. There are some communities, uh, uh, black and Muslim ones, for example, who very legitimately fear Uh, uh, that reporting a hate crime will lead to surveillance of their communities, which is why, um, you know, there are groups now that have created hotlines through which you can report hate crimes. So I think there are mechanisms there as well where we can allow people, um, you know, to come forward in an anonymous kind of way. 
And speaking of anonymity, let's talk about social media <laughs> and solutions and problems there. It, it is a thread in the book, you know, not every story, but but a few of the stories include really upsetting but familiar uh, narratives about harassment online. And it's something I'm, I know everyone knows about it. Uh, you talk a little bit about what, what you think technology companies could do. Do you have any more thoughts on that? So this is a difficult issue, and very smart people disagree on it. Uh, from my vantage point, if you talk to survivors, targeted communities, racial justice organizations, they will all tell you that social media is a vital tool for organizing, for reaching their communities, for healing and the like. And they will tell you overwhelmingly that they support technology companies taking a stronger stand against hate. So I agree with them. I think technology companies should take a stronger stand against hate. And that means rooting out white supremacists and rooting out folks who troll Alexandra Brodsky in the book um, or Tanya Gersh uh, in the book. But I also think that there have to be mechanisms in place to keep these companies accountable. So if somebody is removed, there should be an appeals process. I think there has to be transparency so we know why people are being removed, how many people are being removed, um, and information like that. So in general, I think the Internet is in in some ways is still young. Um, We're only beginning to understand the effect of companies like Facebook and Twitter and the like on our lives. And I think as this process moves forward, and by process I mean a conversation between these companies, regulators, and the communities they serve, I think they'll get better. So there's no question mistakes are happening. There's no question that they are for-profit companies, and at times abuses do occur. But I also think that We are making incremental progress, and I think we'll continue to see incremental progress in rooting out hate online. And I can tell you that it is very important to impacted, vulnerable communities across this country. And I will also say that when you look at the discussions that actually happen about free speech online, no one bothers to include survivors. No one bothers to actually include people who've been viciously trolled, whose lives have been torn asunder buy some of this stuff online. And you think if those voices were included, we might get a policy that looks more like what you're talking about? I think it would help because I think a lot of the people who are involved in these discussions haven't actually experienced the ramifications of hate online, right? Um, And I think if we were to actually speak to survivors and speak to communities who are targeted in really vicious kinds of ways, sometimes by organized white supremacist groups, whether it's the Daily Stormer, um, whether it's by bot armies, it would definitely enhance the discussion. And I think it would open people's minds as to what it actually means and feels like to experience you know, trolling online. Taylor Dumpson in her story, Taylor Dumpson was the first African-American woman to ever be elected student body president at American University. And days after, you know, the, the day after she took office, nooses were found hanging across campus at American University. And she talks about how days later she got home And there was all this hate. 
the Daily Stormer had photoshopped these there, there were all these photos of, of of her and they had photoshopped KFC buckets of chicken on on her head and all of these nasty things, you know, just calling her terrible names. And she talks about how she has PTSD. She has post-traumatic stress disorder in part because of what she experienced, which is why she's actually suing the Daily Stormer. And Tanya Gersh is suing the Daily Stormer. I think what I'm hearing from you as far as solutions is a lot about accountability and transparency and less about like hard and fast like rules necessarily or laws. Am I am I hearing you right? Yeah. I mean I, I, I think it's I think it's a balancing act. I, I think companies need to take a strong stand against hate online, but they have to do it in a way that is accountable and in a way that is transparent. And and there is that sort of delicate line. Yeah, there is a delicate line. And you say in your conclusion when you're talking about uh, tech companies that the heroes of today can be the foes of tomorrow. Technology companies may target white supremacists today but could go after Black Lives Matters activists next. And I put my cards on the table. I'm someone who comes from a more libertarian place originally. And so when I hear stuff about hate hate crimes and when I hear stuff about you know, cracking down on, on hate speech, there's a part of me that gets my back riled up. because, But not because of um, I think those people shouldn't have consequences, but because I do worry that the laws we pass today intended to punish you know, people who we who we now are, are see as clearly bad actors like white supremacists can be turned around and used against the vulnerable people. Um, you know, that's like my concern with um, any kind of regulation of free speech. What what is, where are you on that balancing act? What what are your thoughts? So that's a real legitimate concern, and and that's why I mention it in the book. Um, there is a fear that tomorrow um, these companies could decide to go after Black Lives Matter activists or go after uh, uh, pro-Palestine activists, um, and that's why if this is going to work, if if we are going to trust technology companies, you know, to do the right thing and to take a stand against things like white supremacy, they have to do so in a way that is public, in a way that is accountable, and in a way that is transparent. Um, and it may turn out, I'm 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 open to this. It may turn out that they can't be trusted to do this, and it may turn out that that dialogue that I'm anticipating um, that's going to happen between these companies and regulators and communities maybe to some degree shareholders, isn't going to happen, in which case, you know, I'm happy to revisit the position. But I fundamentally believe that despite the fact that Facebook is a $500 billion company, um, it's still a young company. Um, Twitter is still a young company. Um, and we're only beginning to wrap our arms around uh, the power they have and, 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 and how they can make these platforms a little more Equitable, um, you know, and a little more um, um, kind, um, and you know, open to communities being able to communicate without being sort of viciously targeted. So again, I do think it's a delicate balancing act. It's a balancing act, though, that gets a lot. Um, you get a lot of ballast. I don't know sure what the metaphor is, but it, once you start involving, the people are affected. I think our mutual friend Anil Dash points this out when he's talking about. Uh, you know, just user interfaces for these things and the very way that they're th- these uh, technology companies are structured, the way that their uh, products are structured, because they're so 
they're built from the imaginations of straight white men for the most part. You know, there's all these unintentional and sometimes intentional biases kind of just baked in. And so once you start involving people who aren't straight white men, you are you start baking in different values. I think it's amazing to me, like, how many problems in this country could be solved if you just put fewer white men in charge of things? Um, I, I, maybe that's a leap of faith, but I, I'm, 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 I feel like that, that would be helpful. Just you, Even if we don't know exactly what's going to happen, we could take that chance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I think, you know, the product is going to be a reflection of, of who was in the room and who took part in the decision-making process. And the more we diversify who's in these conversations, whether it be folks of color, whether it be queer and trans folks, women, um, the better out. It's not just the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But it will also lead to, you know, better outcomes. And we're seeing that in, in, in so many different places. And again, I, I, I say this very early in the book, that if we want to get serious about how to combat things like hate, uh, prevent hate, and combat state violence, let's talk to survivors. Again, it's just insane to me that there are so many conversations about these issues that happen that don't center them. You know, one of the things that stands out to me when I went to Victoria, Texas um, to meet with uh, um, Ashad Hashmi, the spokesperson for the mosque, at that time at least, he had told me, um, and this was months after the Victoria Mosque was burned to the ground. This is a mosque that was burned to the ground the night that Trump signed the Muslim ban. He told me months later that not a single per- national reporter had come to see him. And spoken to the community. And when I asked him, what do you need? What does the community need? How do you guys plan on addressing hate in, you know, locally in your community? He said nobody had asked him that before. It was stunning. When you talk about what communities can do, there, there are two things you speak about in the conclusion that I want to ask you follow-up questions about because they have to do with my people, you know, white people. Um, one of them is the idea that you shouldn't wait for an instance of a hate crime uh, or some kind of you know white supremacist gathering to have a town hall about race. <laughs> it's a novel idea that you should maybe just decide that's something you need to talk about in this day and age. And there are some places that have done that. Absolutely. Um, there is a lot that can be done to prevent hate crimes. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I sometimes say, and every now and then I get in trouble for it, and as a consequence, I'll say it again now. Um, you know, for a long time, we've been having these interfaith conversations. Um, and I think in some ways, interfaith conversations are important and they're valuable. But it's not enough to just have interfaith conversations. We need to have anti-racism trainings, right? We need white allies to step up. And to open some of these spaces and to talk about things like privilege um, and to invite folks of color who otherwise can't gain admission into those spaces to lead some of these anti-racism trainings. Town halls absolutely are a wonderful way for survivors and communities to come forward to talk about how they're feeling. Here's the thing. There are survivors of hate everywhere across this country. We just don't know who they are. So these town halls can be wonderfully cathartic, uh, 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 healing, and also an opportunity for survivors to come forward and to talk, right, about 
the racism, the anti-black racism, the misogyny, the sexism, the Islamophobia that pre-existed Trump that in some ways made his election possible, right? If we had had town halls like this across the country regularly, Trump wouldn't have been elected. Your town hall might not be as preemptive as you think it is, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It might very well be that there's no such thing as a preemptive town hall in 2018 America, given, right, the history of this country. And I think that that's fair to say. Yeah. To me, it makes total sense. And it's, it's, you know, I'm, I I think it's been a whole show since I've talked about being in recovery, so I have to mention it now, Um, which is in recovery, there's something called a group conscience uh, that you, you're supposed to do every once in a while. And the idea is you get together and you talk about what your group is doing and whether or not you're achieving, uh, acting within the traditions that you that you believe in and the ideals you believe in. And to me, this just sounds like what we're talking about is like this is what every community needs to sit down and think about, whether or not you think you have a problem, because you probably do have a problem. <laughs> you need to sit down and ask ourselves, are we really you know, living out the values that we think you know, that we profess to have. And there's no substitute for that besides actually having the conversation. You can't just look at, for instance, uh, you know, police records. You can't just look at reports of hate crime, right? Because we know those are not comprehensive. You have to have testimony from the people who would know. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's having these town halls, it's having difficult conversations, and it's centering the survivors in these conversations, whether it's in town halls or... You know, folks advocating and, and, and lobbying state legislators to convene hearings across this country where survivors of hate can come forward and talk about their stories. Mm-hmm. And white people get to listen, you know, for a change. If you are listening to this show, and you are actually listening to this show, but maybe if you've been listening to this show before... You've heard me talk about Framebridge. They make it super easy and affordable to frame your favorite things from art prints and posters to travel photos sitting on your phone. Here's how it works. Go to framebridge.com and upload your photo, or they will send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. I have done both of these things. I've gotten a couple of somewhat unusual things framed, a magazine uh, story that I wrote. I had the actual magazine framed. Feel free to go look it up online, by the way. It's a Sports Illustrated story about me, my dad, and TCU football. Had that framed. Um, Dad, pretend we didn't hear that for now. Um, and I also had um, a, a signed letter from Obama framed, but I also had some like Instagram photos framed too. They make great gifts. And if you have something to frame, whether it's like an Instagram photo that seems pretty easy or something a little more complicated, the expert team at Framebridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. And instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when you use Use the code FRIENDS. So I've done something really simple, which is just, you know, getting an Instagram photo printed. It makes a great gift, by the way. Um, You can just have it sent directly to your friend, um, and you'll feel good about putting something that was online actually into the world. I've also had more complicated things framed. I'm thinking about getting a wall hanging framed, which will be interesting. And I will be able to count on the personal service from Framebridge just like you will. So get started today, frame your photos, or send the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, special events. Go to framebridge.com, and again, if you use the offer code or promo code FRIENDS, you will save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. One more time, framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. 
All right, let's clear a few things up about secret clinical strength in a perspirant. Number one, and this may seem obvious, but is not a secret. You can tell anyone about it. Two, it is clinically strong, which means it's good at preventing sweat, like twice as good as a regular antiperspirant. That's why it's on the top shelf. Three, strength is a very cool word, and you do not see it on a ton of women's deodorant packaging. You don't see it on a lot of like women's packaging in general, I'm thinking, except if it has to do with cleaning. So it's it's cool to have that on a actual a product that's not about cleaning. And four, sweating is the worst. It's not the worst, but, you know, it's, it's inconvenient off the time. Uh, at four and a half, again, it's not great. And you should buy secret clinical strength antiperspirant. You also have one important point about, about white people that I think, you know, I, I want to draw attention to, which is that while I think the majority of our work is listening, you write about a few instances where, um, you know, uh, predominantly white activist organizations have wanted to do something about a protest, a crime, a hate crime, or an incident. And the communities of color have said, you know, why don't you take this one, basically? That white America needs to take a stand in a positive way on their own. What does that mean? So you are a wonderfully close reader, and thank you for bringing that story up. So if I have my timeline right, um, in the wake of Charlottesville, there were similar white supremacist marches that were planned for two cities in Tennessee. And rather than participating and leading an anti-white supremacist march, the local Black Lives Matter chapter actually came forward and said, we're not going to lead the counter-rally. We're going to work with our community who continues to be targeted every day in this country, and we are asking white allies in Tennessee to step up. We want you to organize that rally. We want you to step up, and we want you to basically send these people back home and make it clear that their hate, their vitriol, their state violence doesn't belong in this country. Um, and I thought that was an ex- that was it was an extraordinary essay, um, and it was another instance of how white allies can step up in different ways. It's important that not all the work, you know, fall on the shoulders of the people who are experiencing the violence, right? I mean, I think that's it seems obvious once you state it. And speaking of needing to take up some of the work for someone else, you also write about self-care a little bit. And I'm an animal person, so I I immediately noted that you said your form of self-care had to do with being outside with the two German shepherds your family has. So um, do you want to talk more about that role of in fighting hate? Not necessarily German shepherds, although feel free, because like I said, I'm an animal person, but... Um, in general. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I have a lot to say. Um, you know, so there is such a thing as vicarious trauma. And acts of hate impact not just survivors, but they impact entire communities. And it, they impact activists and organizers who work on the front lines every day serving these communities. Often these organizers and activists don't have resources and they don't have time to pause um, and, 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 and care for themselves in, in really the way that they should. And I, I write in my book about how, you know, when I would travel across the country and meet with survivors, 
I was proud of the work I was doing, and I'm still very proud of the work I, I, I did. But it was very painful at times, um, and I felt isolated. I, I, I sort of felt estranged and uh, acutely lonely, and I didn't really know where to turn. And one of the only things to give me comfort um, were these two black German shepherds. I've always loved dogs. Um, I love animals of all kinds. Um, their names are Jake and Sophie. Um, and without fail, after every trip, um, I would go there and I would try to spend as much time as possible as I could with them um, because they only know one thing, and that's just unconditional love. And um, as crazy as it sounds, it's not clear to me that like I could actually do the work I do um, without a community of support. I mean, I just I want to be clear. There are activists across this country who connected me to survivors. Um, this is their book, too. They welcomed me into their homes. They drove me on unfamiliar roads. But, you know, there are those moments that, you know, when you're doing this work where you're by yourself, um, just by the nature of it, and in those moments— yeah, I took great comfort in, in being outside, um, you know, with these with these two animals, and they're just gorgeous. Anyone who gets on my Twitter page, you might be able to scroll through and see a couple photos. <laughs> I was going to say you have to. You, you, we have. We'll post some pictures online of them. Um, regular listeners to the, to the show will know one of the things I recommend to people when they ask me what can I do, you know, um, is walk dogs, uh, work for your local shelter. Uh, not only is I think it important to do service in your community, uh, but it's important to do a kind of service that doesn't necessarily put you on the front lines all the time. Like a kind of service, you know, that is as you get as much as you give. Now, I'm, I also think people should march and write letters and all of that. Um, but there's a lot to be said for that unconditional love and giving it back, giving back to them too. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I want to thank all the listeners and really urge everyone who's listening um, to support survivors, um, uh, to take a stand. There is so much you can do in your community to push back and resist um, the racism, bigotry, and hate that is really ubiquitous across this country. Um, it could be uh, writing a letter to a survivor, lending your voice on social media, uh, calling a politician and making sure that we have strong hate crime legislation, uh, a letter to the editor in your local newspaper, um, a charitable donation to a community organization who does this work every day, opening your house of worship or whatever institution you're a part of to survivors so they can tell their stories. Or as you pointed out, Anna, just getting together and, and having these difficult conversations about racism, privilege, and in some cases, just being fine with listening. It can be hard. Uh, but I think... No one ever regrets listening, you know? You can always regret something you say. It's really hard to regret, you know, not saying something and just listening. I was going to say the irony is now, now I'm talking, but really all I've been doing for the last year is listening as I've met with survivors. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been an extraordinary experience. That actually brings me, I have one last question for you. It may be a long answer, but... We have a little bit of time, which is, how did this book change you? You know, I'm not sure. I knew that there was a lot of pain and um, 
a lot of frustration and a lot of anger across this country, and indeed there is. But what was most surprising to me was the resilience and hope that so many people have. And it was nothing short of awe-inspiring to speak to survivors and hear them talk about reconciliation, forgiveness. You know, Victoria Jabara, this is the sister of Khalid Jabara, you know, she talked to me about how, you know, her brother was murdered on their front porch. I mean, this is 10 feet away from where we were sitting. We're sitting in the living room of the same house. And I sat with the family for hours, and towards the end of the conversation, she talked to me and, 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 and mentioned how, you know, one day out of the blue, she received an email from somebody who identified himself as the cousin of the man who murdered her brother. And in this email, the cousin said, this may not matter to you, but I want you to know that the person who murdered your brother had a very difficult life. He was mistreated. He didn't have a home. His mother left when he was very young and the like. I don't know if any of this will matter to you. I just thought you'd want to know. And then Victoria said to me, you see, Arjun, he didn't have a community. So even in that moment of terrible pain and grief, she was trying to understand and think about how to move forward and lamenting the fact that this person never had a community. So really, just to crystallize the hope, the resilience, the optimism, the spirit, the joy um, that some of these survivors have despite losing so much um, is extraordinary. And that's changed me at my core. And that seems like a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Arjun. It's really an honor to talk to you. Thank you for doing this work. And I, I, hope, I hope a lot of people read this book, even people who think they don't have to. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And that's it for the show. As usual, thanks for listening to the very end. A special thank you to everyone that listened to the very end of the last show and who took the time to send a note, either um, responding to Ben's email, which I responded to last week, or sending me a kind of virtual, you know, at a girl. I would like to say that these personal notes at the end of the episodes aren't pleas for validation, but my entire life is a plea for validation pretty much. So um, thank you. Just thank you. (laughs) And, you know, it's funny because it's true. I do love doing this show and I love doing this show because I love you guys. You folks, I should say. And whatever you do, please take care of yourselves. And we'll see you next week. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.